So this evening I'd very much like to reflect on the theme of compassion. It's said that compassion is the very essence of the path of awakening. Increasingly, I think we begin to see that the whole path of mindfulness-based applications also has much to do with a quality of compassion. Here in this room, when you look at the front of the room, the two images that we use here, we don't use these images because we're particularly fond of image worship or anything of that nature. Anyway, anyway, these two images at the front of the room very much represent these interwoven, interwoven strands of insight or liberating wisdom and compassion. The image of the Buddha is very much here to, in a way, remind us of that possibility of awakening, of what a liberated heart might truly mean for us, rather than a representation necessarily of someone who lived 2,600 years ago. Here we have the image, uh, it's a rather unusual image of Kuan Yin, and Kuan Yin in the, um, in the Buddhist tradition, it uh, translates as one who listens to the cries of the world. It's very much meant to be the embodiment or the representation of, of compassion. Uh, these two strands of insight and compassion very much represented as being the two pillars of this path, inseparable, interwoven in every step of the path of this journey of finding a way to heal suffering. And clearly, if we talk about compassion, we must talk about suffering. If we talk about suffering... It's very important for us to talk about compassion. It is very, perhaps very important for us to understand what compassion is and how to practice it and how to live in the light of compassion and in many ways to let compassion perhaps be the most, the deepest motivation and aspiration in our path and in all the ways that we apply that path. Tonight I want to read you something that's from quite a traditional source. It actually talks about, a, um, it's a kind of dedication, a compassion dedication that is repeated in some traditions as a kind of reminder of intentionality. It says, may I be a protector for those in danger, a guide for travelers on the way. May I be a boat or a bridge for all those who wish to cross the water. May I be a lamp for all those who need light. May I be a place of rest for those who are tired. 
May I be a doctor in the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all those who are ill in the world until everyone is healed. Now, compassion, of course, begins in the very same place that for most of us our journey begins, which is, again, the awareness that not all distress and suffering can be fixed or avoided, and that distress and suffering is not a personal mistake or a personal failure. And the question that really arises from that awareness is, again, a question I touched on the other evening, is how is suffering healed in ourselves and in the world? How can suffering be responded to and embraced? Something we've been exploring over these days. And again, what does it mean to heal? To heal suffering, to bring it to an end. Now, these are very timeless questions, I think, on every spiritual path and in every life. Now, in Pali, again, the language in which the early discourses were recorded, there are two words for for compassion. One word is anukampa, which has a kind of translation of the heart that can tremble in the face of suffering. The other word, karuna, has almost the the connotation of turning outwardly to embrace, to include with compassion. Compassion is describing this capacity both to widen our area of concern and care, and to develop that kind of empathy, there a heart can just tremble in the face of suffering. So what is being described here again is not particularly a feeling, not an emotion, but a way of being present. It's really describing an awakened, open, spacious, unshakable heart that is also deeply rooted in a very keen awareness of interconnectedness and the interdependence of all things in this life. Compassion is also described as a heart of fearlessness that deeply understands the emptiness of all views of self and other, of I and you, of us and them. A compassion, like all other qualities in this tradition, is, is not particularly a destination or a state. It's a practice, and once more, it is not a noun, but a verb. It is a cultivation, a process. In my understanding, Compassion is one of the most meaningful embodiments of emotional maturity and freedom. The Dalai Lama once said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. For 
the heart to tremble, to be able to tremble in the face of suffering, clearly, first, we need to be awake. We need to be present. We need to be close to. We need to be aware. For us to learn to find that fearlessness and openness and steadfastness in the face of pain, we also need to find the ways in ourselves of how to stay near to pain, how to stay near to suffering without being overwhelmed or without fleeing in fear. Now in the path of mindfulness, as we've been talking about this week, we've you've all heard the encouragement to contemplate the body internally and externally. It's very much part of the Satipatthana teaching. Contemplate the body internally, contemplate the body externally. What does this mean? In many ways, I think it means that to, when we contemplate the story of our body, we are really, in a very real way, contemplating the story of all bodies. There's the encouragement to contemplate feeling internally, to contemplate feeling externally. When we contemplate the landscape of our hearts, in a way we are contemplating the landscape of all hearts. The encouragement to contemplate the mind internally, externally. An awareness of the kind of many ways as we've spoken about here, the universality of this mind, the story of all minds. For me, this encouragement in the Satipatthana Sutta is really an encouragement to reach beyond the boundaries of our own story, not to dismiss it, but to reach beyond the boundaries of our own story, to know our story so well but to know that the story of our body, heart, mind, is really a microcosmic view of all stories and of all lives. That kind of that encouragement to contemplate internally and externally, to me, is the encouragement to move towards the language of we, rather than I and you, us and them. It's nudging us towards an understanding of interconnectedness and the compassion through which we see ourselves in others and others in ourselves. It is a Buddha put, I think I already mentioned once, you know. So Buddha said, you know, as I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. (coughs) To learn what it simply means to be steadfast in the magnitude of suffering that is held within this world of stories. So looking again at what it means to contemplate internally and externally, and there's a a wonderful line from a book. It says, you know, the world is not made of atoms. The world is made of stories. And the world as we know it, in truth, is a world of interwoven stories. This world, this room, actually holds a world of stories, doesn't it? 
All of us and our story are unique in so many ways. No one has ever lived within your body, felt your experience, lived within your lives. Yet what we really understand as we listen to others is the universal themes that run through this world of stories. If we reflect upon our own life story, and I think for probably all of us, some of the losses, some of the disappointments we've been asked to meet and embrace. If we look at our life story and remember, probably for all of us, the way that we have suffered at moments in our lives through rejection or blame or shame, the heartache we may have experienced at times in our lives of despair, of loneliness, of fear. If we think of the story of our body and some of the pain or illness we've been asked to meet in the past or are meeting right now, if we think of our minds and, you know, as much as the mind can experience joy and peace, certainly has the capacity to experience the torment of obsession, self-judgment, anxiety. Think of the adversity life has brought to us. The affliction that we have at times, in moments, most of us experienced in our lives. And then if we just were to expand our awareness just a little bit, Sensing the people around us, the people who sit on either side of us, in front of us, behind us, the people we know and the people that we don't know. Do we imagine that there is anyone in this room who is exempt? Do we imagine that there is anyone in this room who has not or is it not being asked to meet their own measure of hardship and adversity? Is there even one person in this room who doesn't know what it means perhaps at times to be lonely, to struggle, to be afraid? Is there even one person who has not experienced pain or heartache? Is there even one person in this room who will not die? Now, compassion practice, as we expand the sense of life story, it doesn't in any way diminish or lessen our own story, but it is really an encouragement to understand the tapestry of suffering, as we often say, the size of the cloth. The size of the cloth. There's a wonderful teaching story from the time of the Buddha about a young mother called Kisugotami whose child died at a very, very young age, and she was absolutely distraught with grief, tearing her hair, weeping. As the story goes, she went to the Buddha, cradling the body of her dead son in her arms, begging the Buddha to bring her son back to life. And he asked her, he asked her to go out into the village and to knock on the door of every house in the village, and to bring back a mustard seed 
from the house in which no one had ever experienced loss or death. Of course, she could not. It did not lessen her grief. It does not lessen the pain of her own loss. But it said in the story, as she cradled her child in her arms, in a way she saw all mothers through all of time who had cradled their dead children. Now this is not the whole story of suffering, as it is certainly talked about in this teaching. And there's another piece, I think, which is very, very important to understand. Is there any one of us here who has not experienced times when our hearts and minds have been shadowed by ignorance and confusion? Have we not also found, probably each one of us in this room, moments when we've spoken or acted out of greed or rage or hatred? And when we sense the world around us, again, it is very hard to find anyone who has not done the same. Again, it's not the whole of the story. Because as we expand our attention, can we understand that we live in a world where really all beings are united in their longing for safety, their longing for acceptance, their longing for protection, for respect, where all beings are united in their longing to be free from pain and fear. And understand that longing of all beings, the way to be cared for, to be understood, to be loved. Then I think we can even begin to see that the the anguish and the terror and even the ignorance of others is again not theirs. We move again into the language of we, as if we're all, in a sense, a part of a single organism, a single body, breathing together, born, living, dying, doing our very best to find our ways to be free of pain. It is this understanding of interconnectedness, it is really the ground of compassion that leads to a compassionate life. Minarepa, again, who I mentioned yesterday evening, actually don't even, I know this, (laughs) he once said, just as I instinctively reach out to care for and heal a wound in my leg as part of this body, why should I not reach out instinctively to heal and care for a wound in another wherever it exists as part of this body? He also at one point said, long accustomed to contemplating compassion, I can no longer see any difference between self and other. Now, it is, in a a very real way, out of this understanding of interdependence and interconnectedness that there arises a very natural and wise compassion, that there is suffering, 
there is an opening to that, there is a trembling of the heart, and there is that instinctive reaching out, a gesture of unconditional compassion. It is a response that doesn't pass necessarily through the filters of, does this person deserve this? Are they worthy of it? You know, what is the kind of suffering that merits compassion? There's an old Greek, I think it's an old Greek saying that though only those, only those people deserve compassion who do not deserve their suffering. That is not the kind of compassion that is talked about here. There is no hierarchy in suffering. There is no blame in suffering, and I will talk about this in a bit. The Dalai Lama has spoken about compassion as the sort of radicalism of our time. And I've actually reflected on that a lot, wanting to understand what is actually so radical about compassion. And my understanding is that compassion is radical, first because, again, it it is swimming against the tide of self-protection and self-cherishing. Two of the most predictable and embedded themes, I think, of our time. You know, if you think about growing up, we have so many messages in our culture, certainly to care and to respect and and, and, and to, to be kind. But we also hear so many messages, inwardly and outwardly, essentially, you know, to take care of ourselves, to fear others, to pursue the dream of the perfect life, as much personal happiness as we can find. And when we equate happiness with having more and more pleasant experience, feeling, and sensation, you know, we essentially were kind of waging a war against life. I mean, certainly, of course, there is something so human, a way turning away from the difficult. But when we see happiness as something that's going to be born of getting rid of suffering, we are at war with life. We are living then in a state of resistance. And in that state of resistance, which is always separation, there's much less ground for compassion to arise. It is so clear that the fertile ground for the arising, the birth of compassion, really lies in our willingness to embrace this life with all its stories. Now it is, I, I do want to mention, because I think it's so important to, to be aware, you know, because we hear the words like self-protection and self-cherishing and immediately we sort of squirm inwardly, you know, it feels kind of like shameful and we shouldn't feel that. But it is important to acknowledge that self-consciousness, self-protection, self-cherishing and all the anxieties that arise from them really much kind of wired into the human condition. They're, they're not shameful, those feelings. They're not bad. But we do begin to see with wisdom that, in truth, our attachment and our preoccupation with self-cherishing and self-protection doesn't actually bring happiness. It actually makes us suffer. It actually makes us unhappy. So compassion is not an encouragement. And, you know, and that insight piece is really important. 
And so compassion is not an encouragement to move from self-preoccupation to self-loathing or self-denial, where we blame or shame ourselves, you know, throughout life for being selfish or self-centered. It is just acknowledging the reality of self-preoccupation and to be able to look at that, you know, fearlessly and wisely and ask ourselves, does it lead to suffering? Does it lead to the end of suffering? And it's out of that insight and wisdom, not that we push, you know, self-interest or self-preoccupation away. We just learn to hold it all a little bit more lightly. Starting to hold it all just a little bit more lightly. And when we do that, that I think is when our circle of concern can begin to widen, can begin to expand, where we have the space to be deeply concerned for the well being of all beings, in truth, knowing that in so many ways my happiness is directly linked to your happiness. My fear is linked to yours. My freedom is also knitted together with yours. And in reality, the depth of happiness in our life is actually equal to the depth of our relatedness. It's equal to the depth of our relatedness, inwardly and outwardly. Again, the Dalai Lama, he once said, I have found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility and happiness comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating compassion for all puts the mind at ease. Puts the mind at ease. Now, compassion then is so much interwoven with insight because it's countering this tendency to fear and resist and avoid suffering. It's countering this tendency to turn away. We could say that compassion is cultivating the tendency or the inclination to turn towards suffering. Uh, Dogen, he was one of the much admired teachers of the past, And he asked his teacher, he said, what is the mind of compassion? And his teacher answered, it is a soft and flexible mind. Dogen said, what is a soft and flexible mind? And his teacher answered, it is the willingness to let go of your body and mind. So how do we cultivate this soft, this receptive, this flexible mind? Much of this has to do with acknowledging what is. We see, we sit here in the center of the world, the world that holds much pain and suffering. And that happens to be where we are in this moment, and it happens to be The fact that every human being is sitting in exactly the same place with us in the center of the same world. We sit in the center of this world with all the anguish and pain and hardship that we meet in our lives and we know that all beings are doing actually just the same. It's where the Buddha sat when he sat underneath the Bodhi tree. Rev. Anderson 
one of our teachers who comes here, he, he once wrote, he said, Buddhas don't sit on the, on, in the suburbs of suffering, they sit downtown. Mm. Well, guess what? We're already there. <laughs> it's not like we have to move somewhere. We're already there. And there is something about just opening to the simple truth of that moment because this is where compassion actually is also radical because it's really asking us to find that kind of fearlessness. And fearlessness does not mean that there's no fear. There's plenty of fear. The fear of being overwhelmed by suffering, the fear of getting lost, the fear that our heart is not vast enough to embrace the pain we meet, That fear can be there without us taking it up and running with it and closing down. Fear can be there, as we've spoken about in the the teaching here, fear can be there without us becoming fearful. Because we see how fear and self-protection are pretty much wedded together in a terrible marriage and, you know, more and more we hear the messages in our world to live a fearful life, to be suspicious, to be mistrustful, to blame, um, even to hate, to solidify the story of self and other, the endless alienation and conflict. And it's very easy to make that somewhat remote, but we remember that alienation just begins nowhere else but within single human hearts. So it is a very radical act to renounce the pathways of fear because that is to begin to renounce the pathways, the thoughts, the world of blame and ill will and to learn what it means to connect again and again with this soft mind this malleable mind, this receptive heart. Some time ago I listened, I think, I don't know if it's the same monk that Jenny referred to the other day, but I I did listen to a Tibetan monk who, who did spend 21 years imprisoned, much of that time in solitary confinement. And he was actually often beaten and tortured and mistreated and Anne, in truth, lived a daily life pretty much of constant threat. And yet he emerged, and over the years he's talked about that time. And there is something, and I saw this within many people in the Tibetan community, it's actually what really inspired me to begin practice, that their hearts were intact. Somehow they didn't speak about revenge. They didn't speak about despair. They didn't speak about hatred. And and the Dalai Lama asked this monk if he ever felt that he was really in danger of losing his life. And he said many times. He says, but the times I felt to be in the greatest danger were the times I felt I was in danger of losing compassion for my jailers. Now, when I hear that, that's almost an imagine, unimaginable thing to say. So it's an ordinary man. An ordinary man in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Now, when he talked about that time in prison, 
It seemed to suggest that he felt many things other than compassion. Who wouldn't? But despite that range of feelings, compassion was his commitment that enabled him more to survive, but even more than survive, to actually be able to feel still the authenticity of that aspiration. And there's something written, because there's something written about this monk. So there's an appearance almost of a timidity on first meeting, a voice so quiet it might be a whisper. He could easily pass unnoticed until you meet his gaze, a gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything. Seen beyond the suffering he has experienced, beyond all the evil and abuse he has witnessed, yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings. Now, compassionate heart, speak about the softness of it, the malleability of it, the flexibility of it, the receptivity. But compassion also needs wisdom and it needs discernment because there are times in reality when we do feel in danger of becoming lost in suffering. We do feel perhaps, you know, overload and in danger of being... Uh, of losing our ground, losing our stability. And we so see the way compassion needs the vigilance and the wisdom and the protection of mindfulness. How to, sur- uh, uh, how to bring those together. How to bring those together. When we face suffering, we need an, an anxiety and, and anger and pain. We do need to know how to surround them with equanimity and acceptance and spaciousness, allowing them to arise and pass without being lost in their currents. And I know that many of you work in situations where you face a daily diet of pain and face a daily diet of suffering in others. And one needs to tread so carefully in that ground to know how to listen not only outwardly, but to know how to listen inwardly. To discern when, there, when it is wise to act and to give, and when it may be equally important to know the wisdom of being able to step back and sometimes say no. In listening inwardly, to really listen to the moments when our bodies, our mind are signaling, sending signals of distress that ask to be listened to. Compassion must combine that inner listening, knowing the times to pause, to rest, to reclaim the steadiness of ground in our heart. That is part of training ourselves in a compassion that is boundless, that is unconditional, but it is a training. So I want to look at where are the places where compassion most easily falters. And I I sort of see two places where compassion most easily falters. I think one place is on the rocky ground, on the seeming impossibility of bringing suffering to an end. And then the other place where compassion easily falters is in the face of ignorance, when we are faced with 
those who may misuse or who harm, who perpetuate suffering. Recently I, I read something about, it, it, it was a story of a woman in a refugee camp in Darfur. And she said that if she went out of the camp to fetch water in the morning, she risked the almost certain possibility of being raped or even killed. But that if she didn't go out of the camp to fetch water in the morning, she risked the almost certain possibility of her children dying of thirst. And this is, of course, just one story amongst the countless stories of people in this world who face on a daily basis unimaginable choices and suffering. And, you know, it's in the midst of that that we are asked to imagine the possibility of ending suffering. We know that it is impossible. In a way, we know it's impossible, but we act as if it is possible to do so. This is the paradox of compassion. To actually know the impossibility of ending all suffering, but to act as if it is possible to do so. Empathy is, is the ground of that trembling, that, that, that anukampa. We know we can't feel another person's experience, their heart, their life. We know we live with the same heart and mind in so many ways, with the capacity for hate and love, for loss and fear and joy, and for the longing for freedom. In the Tibet, uh, in the Mahayana tradition, the compassion intentionality that is held very much within what is called the Bodhisattva vow. It says, although suffering is endless, I vow to end it. Now, when our heart is open and faced with so much pain and sorrow, it can feel so intractable that it begins, we can't even trace its beginning. We can feel often this, this, this sense of, of it being too much and even the inclination to turn away. Sometimes I hear people speak about compassion fatigue happening. And I think it's not just about being faced with suffering that seems impossible to end, but I think that kind of feeling also happens because compassion is not matched with equanimity. And also because at times, we, again, we are prone maybe to see compassion as a solution, as a way to fix something. We have, might have an agenda of change. And in this path of compassion, we're asked again and again to find a way to cultivate a compassionate, soft, receptive heart that asks for nothing and to act in a way and give in a way as if it is truly possible to heal suffering and to free all beings from pain and suffering and to do this in the face of the seemingly impossible. Taking our seat in compassion, finding the willingness to listen to the cries of the world, gently aligning ourselves with the commitment to protect and to heal includes protecting our own hearts from despair and ill will and resignation and fear. And every time we do this, 
we just lessen the amount of suffering in the world a little bit. And in doing so, we actually also act in the service of protecting all beings. Now the second place I think where compassion easily falters or disappears probably really often is in the face of those who perpetuate, perpetuate violence or suffering or, or pain, in the face of those who might abuse or harm or kill, or even in the face of those who in much less severe ways you know, we might be exposed to as people who are being very judgmental or harsh or accusatory, accusative towards us. In one of the Buddhist texts, it, it talks about the way of, you know, this kind of developmental sense of, of compassion. And it begins by bringing into one's attention, first of all, an image of a person or, or people in this world who are suffering but who are quite innocent, quite blameless. You know, a child who is suddenly beset with cancer or, or simply the frailty of an elderly person struggling to get through their day. You know, there, there's no blame here. It, it is so innocent. It is so blameless. And then we begin to expand to perhaps, again, this sense of people who are caught in situations in their lives in, in droughts, in famines, in wars not of their choosing, who are actually caught in the midst of, of fear and violence, which is not of their choosing or of their actions. And in some ways we can feel the, the kind of just, the, the unhesitating compassion that can arise in the face of that sort of blameless suffering and pain. And then in, in these instructions, it goes immediately, the developmental sense is quite different than in meta. it goes immediately from this place where compassion is quite unhesitating and then says, invite into your attention someone who is causing pain, someone who is perpetuating pain or suffering. And to see the, the twofold nature of that suffering, the painfulness of the act that is being perpetrated and the painfulness of the ignorance and blame and anger that is the source of that act. Now, when we are faced with those who are per perpetuating pain, it can often feel actually that anger and blame is far more appropriate than compassion. This is really the big leap of compassion. I think this is really the, the most radical part of it, to be able to see ignorance as suffering. That's a big thing, to be able to see ignorance as suffering, to be able to see that there is no act of hatred in this world, no act of anger, no act of violence, no act of estrangement that is not born of ignorance. These are not acts that are born of understanding or a healed heart or a heart of well-being. They are born of ignorance. That doesn't mean that we condone them in any way. But we actually have to see what does compassion mean in the face of those because this will be part of our lives. I mean, it's not that hard to feel compassion for, you know, an alien child. But for someone who acts with violence... Now, it's so interesting here, because here we see the different facets of compassion. I mean, Kuan Yin, if you look at the history of Kuan Yin, 
Sometimes Kuan Yin appears in this form, you know, this receptive, sweet-faced, you know, nice figure. But if you look at the history of Kuan Yin, Kuan Yin also appears as an armed warrior who has not only that capacity to be present and receptive in the face of suffering, but this other aspect of compassion, which is the fearlessness to say no to the causes of suffering, which is really what an ethical life actually means. So compassion in this sense does not mean condoning, but it means not abandoning. It means not to abandon anyone. It doesn't mean justifying, but again it is really seen that every act of alienation, every act of separation is an act that will lead to more suffering. It's not easy. Reaching out to protect where protection can be offered. Reaching out to end the causes of suffering. But also being able to see suffering as suffering. I think, you know, in some ways we can see in ourselves too that we are part of that web, probably, as I mentioned. We all know times of acting, thinking, speaking in ways that are born of confusion and ignorance that can cause harm. And no being is, just as no being is exempt from suffering, we also hard to find any being exempt from ignorance. So compassion doesn't mean means not meeting ignorance with more ignorance. And in a way, our compassion needs to be equal in size to the ignorance that we meet. As Ryokin once said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in, the, in this floating world. Now, I used to have really big arguments with my teacher about this. Because when he got to this piece about compassion for ignorance and compassion for those who cause harm, I would say, no way. You know, and he, he just had this thing he would say, he would say, swallow the blame, swallow the blame. And I would say, no way. <laughs> and he would say, swallow the blame, swallow the blame. You know, he said, this is your holding, swallow the blame. If you genuinely want to understand compassion, if you genuinely want to protect all beings... If you genuinely want to follow, walk this path which is concerned with the healing and liberation of all beings, he said, swallow the blame. The blame is the story of I and you, us and them. It doesn't mean that we again that we condone or justify, but we don't abandon. Compassion, I think, is a willingness to to acknowledge that ignorance as much as part of the mandala as suffering as a broken heart is or as an alien body. And compassion, that the compassion that knows no boundaries is a, is a compassion that can acknowledge the suffering of ignorance. <coughs> the Dalai Lama again once said, he said, I can't pretend to practice compassion all the time. But it gives me tremendous inspiration that deeply inside I realize how valuable, beneficial, and transforming it is. That's all. (laughs) I feel that radicalism of compassion that allows us to find 
that equanimity and fearlessness of heart that can embrace the innocent suffering, the blameless suffering, and the perpetuated suffering. I think that is often where we can begin to discover a depth of compassion not possible for us. In the Christian tradition, there's a saying that say, says, you know, true prayer begin, becomes possible when all doors have closed and our hearts have turned to stone. When the Buddha spoke about compassion, he actually speaks of it just as much as metta, as a way of liberating the heart, asking us to understand what is in this life, asking us what we can cultivate, encouraging us to cultivate this heart that can tremble in the face of suffering, that is rooted in a sense of interconnectedness. And that is a response to the moment. Okay, so if we have just a moment quietly together, please, and then we'll go.